0: Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uphal, a at 22 at Dartmouth College. On today's episode, we look at regional energy policy in the United States. The date is the 20th of May, 2020, and our guest today is Professor Elizabeth Wilson, Professor of Environmental Studies and the Director of the Arthur L Irving Institute for Energy and Society. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. So before we get started, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about your past research as well as as about your areas of specialisation. So if you could briefly run us through that, that would be great.
1: Sure. I'm really interested in how energy systems are changing in practice. Um, One of the challenges of adapting to a world with a changing climate is adapting our critical infrastructures, energy being one of those critical infrastructures. And so the challenges of creating an affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy systems um, are, are ones that are facing the planet over the next decades. So that's what I study.
0: So I'd like to move on to, of course, talking about your research and about, I guess, the general background on the causes behind the difficulty of the uptake of uptake of green technologies. So I guess to start, for some initial context, um, could you break down the structure of the energy production system, either in the US or globally? And at what rate are things shifting to renewable resources?
1: Okay, that is a huge question. Um, and I think when I think about the energy system, I can think about how we use fuels around the world. Right now about 80% of the energy that we use is fossil fuels. But really energy decisions are governed locally, often at the state level or the, the country level or the regional level like North America or, or Europe or, or um, big parts of, of South Asia and China. And so when you're thinking about the energy system, it's useful to think about what the end uses are Um, we use energy for in buildings for heating for cooling for running our refrigerators and our lights we use energy for transportation for moving our cars, our ships, our planes, although not so much of that now. We use energy to move our goods, for our supply chains, for our financial industry. Energy is one of those backbone technologies that supports all other industrial activities in the world, and so when you're thinking about energy systems, you have to think about The rules, the tools, and the jewels, what the sources of energies are, how they're being converted into useful work, and then how they're being governed, what the business structure is, and what the economics are. So a lot of my work has examined how different contexts shape energy technology perceptions, adoptions, rules, and and what makes things legal.
0: I see. And could you briefly talk a little bit about those contexts? So are those just geographical or are there other facets that you look at?
1: That's a really good way to think about it. Um, I first started out looking at geographic contexts. And some of my earliest work was trying to examine a technology, a, a wind Uh, wind power technologies, wind turbines, and understand why in some areas the technology was being readily adopted and in other areas it wasn't being readily adopted. And now this had nothing to do with the availability of a good wind resource. So oftentimes people think you can only build solar where you have a lot of Sun or you can only build wind where you have great wind resources and if the world were a perfectly economically rational place that's where you would start. But it's not. And some of the places where you had the first spreads of wind technologies had okay resources but not great. Some of the places you had the first spread of solar technologies like Germany or New Jersey, you didn't have super solar resources. So there were other things driving the technology. So understanding the context for policy development for the subsidies or requirements that they passed in state laws or country laws really helps to provide more detail on the determinants shaping the speed and pace of energy system change.
0: I see, and I'd like to go back to something you said about Um, energy policy being made, I guess, on a very regional level, um, even within countries. I mean, I personally didn't look at it that way. And I guess I assumed it would have been, you know, on a national or centralized level. So um, I guess much of your work looks at how institutions like RTOs shape the rate of energy system transition. So briefly, what are RTOs and what are your most interesting findings in this area?
1: So let me back up just a little bit. I mean, in a country like the United States, we definitely have national energy policy. And there are organizations and institutions like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Department of Energy that does research, um, and, and groups like the and organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency that regulates um, environmental emissions from energy sources. But you also have states that are responsible for setting rates in the electric sector. And so the public utility commissions and the state um, legislatures are often passing policies or setting electric system rates that govern how um, systems actually work. Additionally, states are largely responsible for siting of energy facilities, whether it's transmission lines or new power plants or new wind farms. And so the national level and the state level have been really well studied. And a few years ago, we started to look at organizations called regional transmission organizations. These are organizations that um, are authorized by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, but they're voluntary organizations and they perform a function almost like a super utility. So they'll cover service territories, for example, covering more or less the areas of 11 states in the mid-continent independent system operator or about seven or eight states in some of the configurations in the in the, the eastern regional transmission organizations or RTOs and these organizations are responsible for operation of the electric power grid in their service areas they're responsible for markets and they're also responsible for coordinated planning Now the members of the RTOs are the transmission owners, the utilities, the big load operators, um, the states. And so they're really this kind of um, institution that exists between the national level and the state level and and handles a lot of the operation of electric power system. And the reason we got interested in this was my, my graduate student at the time, Nathan Payne, was looking at a hypothetical pumped storage plant in, located in, in, in Minnesota, northern Minnesota. And when we used all of the numbers of the art and rules of the mid-continent RTO at the time, we got one value for the technology. But when we changed those rules and started to use the rules of the New England ISO, the ISO that covers us in New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, Connecticut, um, we realized that the value of the plant changed significantly. And so instead of having um, all of the, the value being produced by arbitrage from buying electricity when it was cheap and generating electricity through a pump storage mechanism was more expensive. Um, we actually changed the value of the plant by 240% by just changing the rules that were used in one RTO and another. And at that point, we said, you know, as policy scholars, as people who study how the energy systems work in practice, this is a really important and understudied area. And So then I had a next project funded by the National Science Foundation with colleagues at um, Boise State University and Penn State University where we did a comparative study examining decision-making within different RTOs. We looked at the California Independent System Operator, We looked at the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, the MISO region, and we also looked at PJM, which stands for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, but is the Mid-Atlantic System Operator. It's one of the largest energy markets in the world with 48 million customers. And what we discovered in that research and sitting through (laughs) hundreds of hours of uh, meetings and and examining thousands of pages of of transcripts is that the, the RTOs themselves operate quite differently. While they're all performing the same functions in terms of ensuring system reliability, running the markets, and planning for different futures, the projects that they undertake, how they make decisions, whether they are comprised of um, multi-state or single-state uh, actors, whether they are um, the, the states have been restructured or traditionally regulated, all affect the relative power of various entities within the RTOs and thus how they make decisions. So our interests originally were looking at How are renewable resources like wind, like solar, being integrated into um, energy systems? How is transmission planning happening? And how are variable resources like wind and solar being integrated into energy markets? And it expanded to really address the, the different problems that the different RTOs were dealing with. Well, that problem was one that we were studying in the MISO region at the time we were doing our study. PJM had a lot of work happening with third party demand response management. In California, the focus was on the creation of the energy imbalance market with other Western states. And so we appreciated that the policy agendas in each of these energy markets was really driving how renewable technologies were being deployed, operated and valued.
0: I see. So. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. So what exactly is the rationale behind having RTOs? Is it just to make sure that I guess the, I mean, making within the U.S. is obviously it's a gigantic country. So is it just to break that up into into smaller regions? And if so, um, what is it that influences these RTOs to make, I guess, such different judgments that affects the value of these technologies when I would assume that I guess green technologies are across the board kind of the the standard of what we're what we're aiming towards. Sorry if that's a bit long winded.
1: Well, not at all. I mean I, I think some people share those values that, that you just articulated, that, that you know, green technologies and the sustainable energy system with low emissions is what we're aiming for. But not everybody. And within the US, as you mentioned, it's a big country and, and, and the piece that I think is important here to remember is that rtos are voluntary organizations so you as a utility choose which rto you're going to join and there have been some very kind of famous cases in the history of rtos where one utility started in one rto and then left to go into another rto um, because they thought for whatever reason it worked better for um, for for what they needed and the basic premise is that if we're working and planning our, our utility, which has an exclusive service territory over a larger area, we will be more efficient. That's the basic premise. The basic premise and our kind of economic um, framework here is that by having our assets shared over a larger geographic area, we will be able to provide reliable service at a lower cost to more customers. Now, whether or not and how that's played out in practice, I think is a really good question and there is some analysis supporting one position and there's some analysis coming to very different results. Um, And when you're thinking about the RTOs, you're also thinking about the policy priorities within the different states. So at the time we did this study, and this was the, the paper that I sent you, um, a lot of the states in the MISO region, in the middle of the country, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, which stretches from Minnesota now all the way down to New Orleans, um, but at the time was mostly New England, or I'm sorry, Midwestern states. They had a lot of state policies Called renewable portfolio standards, where they were requiring their utilities to produce a certain percentage of their electricity from renewable resources like wind or solar. Very early on, the governors and others in those states realized that they were not going to be able to fulfill those goals unless they had transmission lines, additional transmission lines over their area to make the value and the cost of renewables less. And so the first coordinated efforts to build transmission lines and to integrate variable renewable resources into the markets started happening as a way to allow the states to fulfill their renewable portfolio standards in practice. In California, it was a different problem. Um, California as if you look at a map you'll realize is a huge state with almost 40 million people. If you drive from one end of California to the other it's about 16 hours Um, and one of their challenges was getting enough renewable power in to be able to meet their standards and the western states in the footprint west of them were challenged in integrating renewable resources into their energy systems without having a market structure with smaller time steps. And so those conversations about the creation of an energy and balance market were about the, you know, increasing reliability over that service territory, but also helping the members meet their various different goals. And so when you're thinking about adopting green technologies or renewable energy technologies, you have to think about it within the context within within which it's being built. In Europe, you see the same thing where you had, for example, in Germany, a lot of wind turbines being built in the north of Germany and a lot of the demand in the south. And the need for transmission was clear but very, very hard to build given the German lander structure. And there in Europe, the European ENSO and kind of the integration of wind onto that market has been another parallel story. And so it's not just the technology. The technology, a wind turbine, is a very different thing depending on where you put it, depending on what the markets are, depending on what the value of the electricity that it produces is. Does that make sense? We teach a whole class on this. I mean, it's, it's actually really fun to pick apart because you think about a technology, but when you start thinking about it in context, if you put a, a solar panel up in Singapore, it has a really different value than if you put it up, I don't know, in Finland.
0: I see, yeah, no, definitely. And sorry, just for, um, I guess, listeners information, which class is that?
1: ENVS 12, Energy and Environment. Um, I taught it last winter. We'll be teaching another um, energy transitions class this winter um, with uh, Meredith Kelly in uh, geology. That one I think will be a little bit more transportation focused. but. I mean, the, the great thing about energy for you know anybody is that you can think about it from a legal perspective. You can think about it from a geopolitical perspective. You can think about it from an economics market perspective. You can think about it from a social justice perspective. Energy is, is, is so multifaceted that however you want to approach the, um, this really critical infrastructure, it can have meaning for you in a way that you care about. So in my class, we had uh, students who were interested in fashion, <laughs> and they started to examine the fashion supply chain and the energy implications of how we make and use all of our clothes. It's you can really you can really think about it in different ways. And so for us, I got really interested in these energy markets and energy decision making infrastructures that hadn't really been studied because we realized early on that their rules. Um, 're shaping how technologies were operating in these different areas, and things that we assumed were impossible you couldn't have more than this much wind or this much solar on your system are now because of advances in control systems in markets in how the grid operates you know standard and happen every day
0: um and I guess now I'd like to shift the conversation to perhaps um a COVID-related note, I mean, of course, there's been a lot of discussion around how lockdowns have kind of alleviated air pollution, at least in the short term. So um, from an institutional perspective, I guess, talking about RTOs, um, do you think that these um, this, this short-term shock will lead to some sort of long-lived um, change in the way that perhaps RTOs approach environmental policy and will lead towards, um, I guess, greener Um, forms of energy production?
1: So I think this is a really interesting question. When when you think about the energy system and how it's been affected by COVID, um, you have seen decreases in electricity use. Um, And so, you know, you have to supply electricity when it is needed so that there's this match, a very tight match between energy generation and energy demand. Um, Storage can soften that a little bit, but it's still a little bit expensive. And so what a utility will do is project, you know, given their decades of experience um, and their service territory that they they serve, how much energy will be needed for different time blocks, like between 8 and 9 a.m. or 9 and 10 a.m. or 10 and 11 a.m., you know, at, at, at different times. And what we've seen in COVID is that electricity demand has decreased in some areas like New York City about 14%, but in other areas more modestly about two to 10%. And so this decrease in electricity is generally caused by us not going to our offices, so we're not running places there. But interestingly, you've also had a shift of when people use electricity. You can actually see in the energy data that people are using electricity a little later in the day, so possibly waking up a little bit later. Um, So that's electricity. If you look at transportation fuels, those are even more dramatic. Uh, I believe aviation fuel is now down about 75% and uh, gasoline for driving 20 to 35%, depending on where you are. Um, How that will pick up after restrictions are lifted is something that we're all going to be watching. Um, In the US, there's been an effort by the current administration to loosen environmental regulations. So RTOs are not in charge of implementing environmental regulations. They're in charge of ensuring system reliability, running the markets, and doing the long-term planning. It's the utilities and the plant operators in conjunction with their state environmental office and and federal EPA that are responsible for meeting the emission standards from electric power plants. And I think one of these questions of what types of long-term behavioral changes Will occur because of the pandemic, and I think we can think about this in, in two or three timeframes. You know, currently lockdown, and then this kind of loosening period where we're not kind of back to normal, and then the longer term time frame. I think the longer term time frame and how we invest in different technologies. Um, the, the the relative market value of, of renewables um, has has created markets that are you know trillion dollar markets the relative value of coal plants um, has really been shaken up during a crisis like covid where they were kind of just on the borderline economic before, but now with the reduced electricity demand, they're sub-economic, and a lot of utilities are making decisions to shut down some of these plants in North America, in the United States. This isn't true in other parts of the world. And so I think that the long-term piece of how the system evolves is something that everybody's watching. One of the things that I've appreciated in examining energy system changes kind of after the 2000 shocks, after the 2007-2008 shocks are that generally this after an economic shock, like um, after a big economic shock, the, the size of projects and the investment into new projects often decreases. And so whether or not we'll have the appetite to keep investing in new energy technologies at the rate we need to adapt our systems, I think that remains to be seen.
0: I'd like to now move on to your work at the Arthur L. Irving Institute. So I know that a large portion of your time has now been dedicated to this. Um, So for listeners, could you briefly describe what the ALI Institute is and what your work there looks like?
1: Yeah, IES, the Irving Institute for Energy and Society, is a Dartmouth initiative under President Hanlon focused on energy and society. And for me, that is a great combination. There are lots of other energy institutes around the US. I think it's 138 or something like this now, at other US universities. But a lot of them focus on technologies or economics, but having one with that and society component where we can explicitly ask questions about social justice issues, about the context, about the geopolitics, in addition to the technologies, really gives us the ability to have conversations that fit incredibly well in a liberal arts institution like Dartmouth. So our work has a research component, it, and that supports the research of professors, students, graduate students, and postdocs on campus. We have an engagement component. I don't know if you realize this or not, Drew, but right now there's 3,700 Dartmouth alumni who work in the energy sector. And while Dartmouth doesn't call itself an energy school, when I was putting together our advisory board a few years ago, I have the head of the American Wind Energy Association. I have the head of the Solar Energy Industries Association. I have the head uh, or former head of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, all Dartmouth grads. And so, you know, the placement of your fellow Dartmouth people in the energy sector is really impressive. Vice President of, of ExxonMobil Marketing, Abby, Abby Rogers as well. And so that engagement with, um, with alumni both to share their professional experiences with current students, but also to help us um, uh, strengthen the opportunity for Dartmouth students to have internships in the field, or that practitioner perspective in in what is shaping the industry um, is incredibly useful. So we have a series right now that we just started um, since we've gone online called Alumni Sparks where we have the alumni come back and talk to students about their careers, just to give some more context for people interested in energy finance, in um, energy and politics work in China. Um, That's actually the one happening tonight with uh, Amy Barnes with the American Wind Energy Association. So that's been incredibly rewarding. And then the last component is education. And so one of the goals, in in addition to the class that I teach, is really thinking about the co-curricular opportunities we have at Dartmouth. This summer, we're moving our Energy 101 class online, and that's just a a free um, six to eight session um, series for anyone who's interested in learning more about the energy system. Um, We've opened it up to all kinds of people to participate and it's been a really wonderful way to introduce people who are curious about energy but maybe not willing to dive into a class um, to the different um, facets of how to think about energy in our lives. And our goal is really to think not only about energy experts, people who will enter the field, but also about energy citizens. People like yourself who may be curious about energy and, and working with your town or your community to make different energy decisions, or, and also just making sure that everybody at Dartmouth is energy aware that you're able to think and know enough about your energy system to understand how it supports your life, the implications for changing our energy system, and just think about it in a more smart and educated way, like we expect you to know, you know other basic skills, like who won the Dartmouth-Harvard game in 2019.
0: I wish I could answer that, but I know nothing about American sports, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it was the first time Dartmouth won in like
0: decades that's that's good to know <laughs> yeah, um, well, I, I, I thought it would be I thought it would be good to end off um, maybe on an unrelated note but for listeners Professor Wilson is actually in Denmark right now um, and I thought it would be insightful to maybe ask you what does the situation look like there
1: yeah, so we have had um I arrived here right after winter term ended and my plan my my husband is Danish and my plan was to spend a few days between the terms uh visiting my husband and family here. And um then we kind of got stuck because they closed the country down. And Denmark has been managing the situation very very well. Um the prime minister and um, we'll stand up for weekly press conferences with uh, the head of the public health and the police and everyone else, and she's been doing a great job. Her popularity is, it has really, really soared. Um, early on, Denmark passed a bunch of policies to support small businesses and others, basically if they kept their employees, the government would pay 90% of the employee salary. So you didn't have the mass layoffs that you've seen in other parts of the world. People have maintained their jobs, and now, actually, on Monday, they've started kind of the, the third phase of reopening. So it's funny for us, we have some, some smaller kids here, and you know, they play press conference where they get together and make announcements as to how we'll all be living in the future. But um, schools opened up about a month ago, and there's really close tracking of um, the different infection rates going forward as well too. So that's been a very positive, um, positive thing. It's, it's a, um, you know, from an energy perspective, you see that the energy use here from transportation in particular dropped significantly when we were locked down and that now cars and trains and buses are kind of back running where they were before, maybe not as full. There's there's suggestions to to maintain social distancing as we go forward. But Denmark has been very proud at how they've managed the numbers of of the disease response.
0: Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that you're staying safe. Professor Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week.